We are back. The counterattack on the critics then continued from the private sector, in this case, CBS News, which in June of 1967 put together a four-part series looking at the controversies regarding the Kennedy assassination. They did things like construct a tower, put well-noted sharpshooters up in it, and see if they could duplicate what Oswald supposedly had done. In spite of the fact these were some of the nation's best marksmen, in almost every case, they failed miserably in reproducing Oswald's sharpshooting. But CBS News would conclude before it was done that, well, basically the Warren Commission may have made an error here or there, but they, they got it right. They cited experts like Nobel Prize laureate in physics Louis Alvarez from UC Berkeley, who noted that in the famous Zapruder film there were some jiggles which indicated that the photographer had reacted to the sound of bullets. It was an insightful analysis, and to no small degree, correct. However, and I remember this from being a kid watching this, when he was asked by CBS what this meant... His answer was, well, it proves that Oswald did it. It, of course, proved nothing of the kind. Just to have a slight sidebar on the subject of Louis Alvarez, he also came to the rescue of the Warren Commission on another matter a couple of years after that. When the Zapruder film was shown at the trial of Clay Shaw down in New Orleans, people noticed that it appeared, when you watched it as a movie, that the president was smacked backward by the impact of the fatal bullet. Some found this inconsistent with being shot from the rear. Which, of course, it is. Alvarez then claimed when he shot a bunch of melons, without exception, he found that the jet effect of spray exiting the target would virtually inevitably cause it to come back in the direction of the shot. Fast forward many years later, in the wake of Oliver Stone's movie, yours truly, with the assistance of Mr. McMillan, decided to test this hypothesis. I asked a man in Berkeley who'd taken part in those shooting experiments of Dr. Alvarez how he'd done it. He told me what they did. So Mr. Miller and I went out to a gun range, set up a video camera, shot the hell out of 30 melons, and guess what? Dr. Alvarez was not telling the truth. What he said happened was not what inevitably happened. And further research into this has pretty well established the jet effect is a fiction. Oh yes, an occasional pumpkin or can may come back at the shooter, but that's not enough to move a human body around. After a D.A. Jim Garrison's case more or less fell apart down in New Orleans, there was a lot of help out there trying to guarantee that his, uh, his case would fall apart. The whole matter kind of went cold. Watergate became the, uh, the, hot, uh, the hot item on the American political scene in terms of major scandals. And out of that, there were a couple notable investigations. The Rockefeller Commission, which looked into um, excesses of the CIA and other monkey business going on at the highest level. And the Church Committee in the Senate was convened to take a look at uh, abuses of the Central Intelligence Agency. It turned out that both of these investigations did touch on the question of what happened to John F. Kennedy. A lot of rather hair-raising headlines came out of those investigations, particularly when the Church Committee discovered that there had been all kinds of assassination plots being organized by the Central Intelligence Agency. Oh, by the way, the CIA admitted, was it a month ago, that they did overthrow the Mossadegh government in Iran back in uh, 1952? This, of course, is no surprise to Iranians. But although these government investigations did, uh, like I say, turn up some surprising materials, uh, there was nothing definitive about the Kennedy case. And then, a private citizen stepped forward and changed everything. His name was Robert Grodin. He was a photographic analyst, and through a series of unusual circumstances, a copy of the Zapruder film came into his hands. 
Evidently, while he was working on it, he decided to make a copy for himself. Robert Groden went to Geraldo Rivera, who then had a, uh, a nationwide television program and suggested to him that the nation should see this as a movie, which it had never done up to that point. It turned out that showing the Zapruder film a couple of times on Geraldo's Goodnight America caused a sensation. The public really started to think it might have been lied to. As a direct result of this, Congress stepped into the matter and decided to investigate the Kennedy assassination and the Martin Luther King assassination via a special committee. The House Select Committee on Assassinations started up in 1976 and it lasted till 1979. A lot of interesting new ground was broken. Particularly, a mysterious trip by Lee Harvey Oswald, supposedly taken to Mexico City just two months before the assassination. The HSCA decided to point out something that had been sort of laying, I guess maybe not in plain view, but it had been laying around not noticed by most people, which was that back in 1963, with Oswald alive as a suspect in police custody, the word went to Dallas that we have tapes of him at the Cuban and Russian embassies in Mexico City from two months before the assassination. Of course, photographs of the suspect and tape recordings were then requested. Several photographs were produced by the CIA of a man who was very obviously not Lee Oswald. His identity is a mystery to this day. But more importantly, an audio tape did show up where the person on the tape identifies himself as Lee Harvey Oswald and remarks upon some of the suspicious things he'd been doing, like going to the Russian embassy to talk to the KGB agent there in, in charge of assassinations. The man spoke pretty good Spanish, but apparently broken Russian. Now, Lee Oswald spoke good Russian and lousy Spanish, and by all accounts, they realized that the man on the tape is not the man in custody. Now, the House Select Committee took another, yet another look at the medical evidence. At this point in time, there had been a lot of evidence suggesting that the president had been shot from the front. That was based on what the Dallas doctors observed when the stricken chief executive was brought in for them to work on. The House Select Committee, in its pages, confidently told the public that we have talked to 26 witnesses that were at the autopsy, which of course had to be a more thorough examination, and all 26 agree that the witnesses in Dallas were all wrong. There's no evidence based on what we saw that the president was shot from the front. After making that bold statement, they then classified all the interviews till the year 2028. But before they concluded their business, someone produced a dicta belt taken by the Dallas police. A police officer had an open mic on one of the uh, radios, in the motorcade, and it was determined that during the exact moment when the shots rang out, impulses were detected on the tape consistent with the signature of gunshots. After doing acoustic testing that matched where in the plaza that microphone might have been, an excellent match was obtained to the position of one of the police officers. But the plot thickens. There weren't three shots heard, but five, and one of them was very definitely matched to the position known as the grassy knoll. But the HSCA had a mandate to finish up their work by the end of 1979, so they did. They said, looks like JFK was killed by conspiracy. We recommend the Justice Department do further investigation and drew things to a close. And that is where it stood up until Oliver Stone. In 1991, 16 years after uh, Robert Groden and Geraldo Rivera got the whole nation in an uproar, Stone did it again. By the way, I've, I saved some months ago Mick LaSalle of the Chronicles a review of the DVD for JFK. I think it might be a good time to quote from it. 
Said LaSalle, Oliver Stone's film about prosecutor Jim Garrison's investigation into JFK's assassination makes for one of the great films of the 1990s. Agree or disagree with its conclusions, it's without question an entertaining and passionate work of advocacy that finds its director and lead actor in top form. Seen again in this 200-minute director's cut, it's fascinating the way Stone's able to sustain interest while presenting a story that's almost entirely expository. I'd remembered it as a film with lots of action. In a sense, we experience it that way. But in fact, most of JFK consists of scenes in which people tell stories, incomplete versions of what they saw or what they believe happened on November 22, 1963. Some of these accounts go on for long stretches and are exceedingly involved, but Stone never loses the viewer and manages to maintain interest and keep the narrative alive with kinetic intercutting. It's a brilliant blend of ideas and sheer technique. Yes, in fact... It almost certainly would have won the Oscar the year it came out, except for the fact the government lobbied heavily down in Hollywood to keep that from happening. Instead, the Oscar that year went to Silence of the Lambs. A good film, but in this correspondent's opinion, not as good. With the nation in an uproar once again, it was decided by uh, the powers that be that something may need to be done about this. The reason for this is that in the final scenes of the movie, the following appeared on the screen. A congressional investigation from 1976-1979 found a, quote, probable conspiracy, unquote, in the assassination of John F. Kennedy and recommended the Justice Department investigate further. As of 1991, the Justice Department has done nothing. The files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations are locked away until the year 2029. That got people's attention. Of course, the Justice Department did have the option of reopening the case, but instead it put together the Assassination Records Review Board. The mission was to go forward and find files that were relevant to the case, and unless there was a compelling national security reason to keep them uh, classified, turn them loose. And over the next few years, a lot of documents were declassified and a lot of interesting things popped up. For example... When the House Select Committee said in its report back in 1979 that the 26 witnesses at the autopsy all agreed with each other and there was no evidence for conspiracy or a shot from the front, well, it turned out that's not what people actually said when you read the interviews. In fact, in some cases, they drew drawings and diagrams showing how what they observed in Bethesda was the fact that the president had the back of his head blown out. This, of course, is consistent with a shot from the front. A lot of JFK researchers were feeling pretty vindicated by a lot of this, not the least of which was Josiah Thompson, who back in 1967 had gotten the Justice Department all worked up over what he was about to publish. He has a new book in the works, by the way, titled Last Second in Dallas, which I think explains a lot of the mysteries of what happened when bullets came whizzing into the car. He talks in the new book about how his interest was reignited by a seminar held in San Francisco by, uh, by our mutual friend, Dr. Gary Aguilar, who's been on the show on numerous occasions, he got together a couple of physicists to uh, take a look at what was thought to be one of the most compelling pieces of evidence supporting the government's view that the assassination was the work of one man. It was called neutron activation. Neutron activation analysis is a way of of analyzing the lead in a bullet for various impurities that would enable you to tell you, in theory, which batch of lead a bullet had come from. So precise was this analysis, we were led to believe, that it was able to say that the bullet, which supposedly hit both the president and Governor Conley, could be matched to a fragment taken out of his wrist. Furthermore, the fragments taken out of the limousine could be matched to a fragment removed from the president at autopsy. 
According to Vincent Gwynn, his neutron activation analysis showed that there were two and only two bullets involved in the crime. The trouble was, as uh, the physicists explained at the seminar in San Francisco, this was complete and utter poppycock. The only way you could do that is if you were assured that the lead being used in a batch of bullets was so thoroughly mixed that it was exactly the same throughout the batch, and that is just not how bullets are manufactured. In reality, neutron activation not only couldn't tell you whether a fragment came from one particular bullet, it couldn't even tell you whether it came from the same industrial-sized vat of lead. I hope that narrative was useful to you, dear listener, to explain how this case has gone back and forth for 50 years. Let's talk about what people had to say last week in Pennsylvania. Let's start with our Pennsylvania political correspondent, Jerry Polakoff, which is what we designated him at one point. In the discussion on the media, Jerry referred to a wonderful piece which you have not read you need to do, dear listener. It was Carl Bernstein's article that I think was in Rolling Stone titled The CIA and the Media. You can find this on the web, I'm sure, and if you've not read it, like I say, you need to. Jerry praised a lot of good work that's been done over the years, including that of Earl Goltz, who was one of the few reporters down in Dallas that dug into the case and found some interesting things. He was rewarded by his editor taking him aside and scolding him and asking him to uh, set aside what he was doing and devote his energy to things that were more productive. And Jefferson Morley, himself a first-class reporter, formerly of the Washington Post. I mean, I was amazed to see a piece about JFK and Reader's Digest a decade ago, written by Jeff Morley. It raised some valid questions about, uh, about official findings. I got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to getting uh, Jefferson Morley back on this program. But uh, he told the audience that he was at one point taken aside by the people at the Washington Post and told, you know, Jeff, this isn't good for your career. Morley noted that he was able to get some JFK pieces in the Washington Post, and he was not censored. And there was, in fact, a normal editorial debate about the pieces. But that, um, well, the Post just wasn't comfortable with the subject. It was clear when he was in the newsroom that the JFK topic was not considered a normal story. And the way he summarized it was that, well, the the Washington Post culture was just risk-adverse. It was not entrepreneurial. For his part, Russ Baker noted that he just got back from a conference in Rio. And when speaking with foreign journalists about his interest in the JFK case, uh, well, it was treated like any other story when talking to foreigners. When he was talking to domestic reporters, they just basically asked, well, you conspiracy theorist. Which, of course, is the same thing as asking, are you crazy? David Talbot talked about how he decided to found his own uh, uh, source for news, Salon.com on the web, because he was frustrated by uh, traditional media. But he has noted that he's spoken with people who are movers and shakers in the business about the JFK case and got some surprising answers. Don Hewitt, the the mastermind of, of 60 Minutes, told Talbot at one point, well, yeah, we know it was a conspiracy, but we just couldn't quite put it together. Talbot suggested that even though you might not be able to solve the case, wouldn't it have been worthwhile to have aired some, uh, some various aspects of what they were investigating? When it was Oliver Stone's time to speak, he decried the fact that there were no young people there. There were, but not very many. And he compared people interested in what happened to John F. Kennedy to abolitionists, people whose passion scared others. Perhaps feeling a bit vindicated, he talked about what Dr. Robert McClellan had told the general audience earlier in the conference. By way of video conferencing from Dallas, Dr. McClellan described what it had been like to treat the stricken president back in 1963. 
Dr. McClellan refuses to let words be put into his mouth, but clearly when he describes the nature of the injuries to the president, he's describing an injury that is far and away most consistent with having been shot from the front. I was struck by one moron uh, in the audience putting the question to McClellan as to whether, you know, what he had to say to people that said, well, he didn't have a very good view of the president's wounds and, and he wasn't really paying that close of attention. McClellan looked surprised and sort of addressed the camera and said, well, no, actually, I had a very, very good view of the president's injuries from about 18 inches away. And as far as paying attention goes, I would say I paid more attention to that than anything else I ever have in my life. And doggone it, how much time we got left, Mr. McMillan? Five minutes. Well, we told you at the onset this was an impossible task. It has been, but we got five minutes left. Let's, let's keep talking about things. We've talked on this show about how Earl Warren has a deservedly stellar reputation as a governor of California and, and later as Supreme Court Justice. Mark Lane, in his talk, uh, pointed out how he's often been asked how it is that Earl Warren could have signed on to a cover-up. Well, his explanation is, and it's entirely credible, that Warren was advised that uh, if there wasn't a cover-up here, we were going to have World War III. A lot of people have pointed out the clear trail that seemed to have been uh, constructed around Oswald, pointing to uh, his so-called communist background, and we could do a whole show on that in the next few weeks, and we probably will. But it's worthy of note that uh, Warren was asked by a reporter early on in the investigation, something like January of 1964, about the case, and he said, you will never get the full story in our lifetime, which is a pretty uh, frank admission from a guy that was about to put together a big whitewash. I was intrigued by the talks given by uh, local boys, Dr. Josiah Thompson and Dr. Gary Aguilar. It's my belief that uh, they have made a um, pretty good case for the fact that the president was evidently struck twice, fatally, within one second, bam, bam. Thompson revealed how, when working for Life magazine back in 1967, he did what the FBI should have done, which was make measurements on the president's body when he was being struck by bullets. He concluded, erroneously, he notes, that under the impact of the fatal shot, he was driven forward momentarily before being driven backward. He now realizes that that is an illusion. Thompson's analysis back in 1967 was considered so good that it was universally accepted by people that uh, thought Oswald did it and by conspiracy-minded people alike. Thompson, in the meantime, to his utter credit, has reviewed the matter and concluded that he was wrong. After getting two-thirds of the way through his lecture, he stopped and said, now I'll bring up Keith Fitzgerald, an independent researcher who's correctly deduced what happens. Fitzgerald took the dace and made a very compelling explanation for the fact that although the president is indeed knocked back and to the left, as you saw in Oliver Stone's movie, after that, there's an abrupt movement forward, something that was seen by a lot of witnesses and appreciated at the time. Thompson thought Kennedy was hit twice, first from the rear, then from the front. On further examination, he's now convinced that Kennedy was hit twice, first from the front, from the grassy knoll shot, which matches perfectly with the acoustics evidence, then a split second later from the rear. All I can say to your listeners, we run out of time, is that we'll be talking about a lot of these subjects again in the next few weeks. I hope that today served as a, a foundation for what's going to follow. In closing, I am grateful for the fact that Dan Hardaway did show up uh, to this conference. He's been missing in action for most uh, previous events. I was struck by the fact that he described how he was only a second-year law student, and so was Eddie Lopez when they were hired by the House Select Committee. He noted to my surprise, and I think the surprise of the audience, that at first he said they were given full cooperation by the Central Intelligence Agency, who perhaps figured, you know, what did they have to fear from a couple of young law students? 
But when they started making headway in these uh, in these documents they were suggesting and the CIA was pulling up, things changed. Toward the end, if he wanted to uh, look at a document, he had to do so at CIA headquarters and was not allowed to make notes he could leave the building with. He could only leave with the notes that he carried in his head. He made a list at one point of who he thought were the most interesting people to examine as regards to being the perpetrators in the assassination. He had to discuss that in CIA headquarters using notepads that he would then leave with the Central Intelligence Agency. Robert Blakey, the head of the House Select Committee, was also not allowed to take any paperwork away. So during a break, I went up to Hardaway along with Gary Aguilar and said, Dan, I got to ask you, if I'd been in that room with you and Robert Blakey at the CIA back then, what names would have been on the list? He said the main guy we had was William Harvey. The names William Harvey of the CIA, David Atlee Phillips of the CIA, and America's master spook himself, Alan Dulles of the CIA, are names we will be talking about in the weeks to come. The punchline I would serve up for future discussions here is that the case was a conspiracy, and the conspirators all seem to tie back to the Central Intelligence Agency. That's just the way it looks 50 years on. Were there mobsters involved? Well, yeah, peripherally. Trouble is, they all seem to have connections to the CIA themselves. We're going to have to leave it there. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around. <laughs> 